maybe maybe if you want to make the world a better place, you have to win the game and make your own damn rules. And I remember very specifically saying that and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do this. For me, it was that kind of impetus of, you know what, I'm, I, I live a good life. I'm very happy. Um, and I could peacefully pass through this life and have had a very content life. But I look at my kids and I think, I don't want to leave them with this mess. Welcome to Cross Pollination. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. This week, we hear from Connie Stacy, the entrepreneur behind Growing Greener Innovations, a company that makes scalable electric battery power systems. Like a lot of the cross-pollinating entrepreneurs we've talked to, Connie's business is stamped with a very distinct approach that arises from who she is, how she thinks, and what motivates her. That philosophy shapes everything the company does, including how it's structured as a business, a social enterprise with an inclusive and an international approach, as well as local manufacturing and a vision related to addressing global energy needs and empowering people through energy. Connie chats here on that approach, working as a woman founder in a non-traditional industry, starting something in a new industry, and how her company is weathering the pandemic. I own a uh, small manufacturing company called Growing Greener Innovations, and we uh, manufacture advanced battery energy storage systems primarily. You know what? It was uh, in terms of before, actually, I was not at all related to batteries. I was in IT for almost my entire career. Um, And interestingly, it was actually the idea of uh, a server room UPS, uninterrupted power supply, that actually initiated a lot of the uh, kind of development that we ended up doing because um, if you're familiar with IT, uh, server rooms have always an uninterrupted power supply so that if the power goes down, uh, the machines are up and running and can safely shut down without losing data. Uh, so that type of thing was always a part of my background, but it was never a part of my everyday work. Um, and it really just ended up that uh, when I had the initial idea about using batteries to replace diesel engines and for solar and for all of these other um, potential uses, a lot of it really stemmed from that idea of a UPS, but of course, much, much more um, uh, integrated in large systems. So they can be as small as something like a power bank that a person would carry. In fact, we have um, recently secured a contract with the Canadian military where we'll be uh, producing uh, small units that uh, individual dismounted soldiers can carry. Uh, And basically on the fly, they can uh, attach them together to make larger systems. So one of the things I think a lot of people don't recognize in batteries, and and interestingly, we were literally talking about this at lunch yesterday. Um, You know, we talk a lot about chemistry advances, which is really actually quite fascinating if you're into this kind of stuff. There's a really vast amount of research that's being done. But when you actually look at the overall cost of a battery system, the primary the primary cost is actually the install. Uh, so the World Bank had the average install cost at about twenty one hundred dollars USD per kilowatt hour. Well, a kilowatt hour is basically like a a car battery. Well, a car battery doesn't cost you twenty one hundred dollars. Uh, so needless to say, the the bulk of the cost actually comes in the install. So the the technicians and electricians and uh, electrical engineers that design systems. So what we did that was really unique is we said, well, maybe we the best thing we can do to advance this industry is not um, make a new chemistry. Maybe it's to make a new way to reduce the amount of effort that it takes to install a system. And that's really where we kind of 
um, put things to use is we created a system that is essentially plug and play. So even though we can have tiny little systems like individual soldiers carrying, you know, what would be the size of a, a power bank, they can be combined in the field to create systems large enough to run a small autonomous vehicle, for example, or drones and things like that. And then we go all the way up to huge industrial systems where, you know, we can be running, you know, huge plants. We can run an entire city and do load balancing and all of these things. But the big, big difference comes in the fact that we reduce the cost to install them. And that really comes around this idea of getting rid of a lot of wires, getting rid of the, uh, uh, not completely getting rid of the electrician in some of the bigger uh, settings, but limiting the amount of technical support that's required. And it just really changes the economics on battery systems quite substantially. So that's what Growing Greener Innovations does. What makes the company different in doing what they do, in addition to, as you'll hear, how they've designed their battery systems to scale, and so that they don't require an electrician or an engineer for maintenance, is their philosophy around energy needs. Connie's experience with that started way back in the part of Newfoundland where her parents grew up. Yeah, actually, um, I originally was born in Newfoundland, uh, moved to Alberta when I was two. Um, but, uh, you know, when I think back to my original roots and, and the communities my parents grew up in, neither of them um, could you, you couldn't access these communities by road. There was, you could only get in or out by boat. Uh, and, you know, they were... Um, you know, it, they, they were quite impoverished in a lot of ways. And the reality was, of course, they didn't actually even recognize that they were impoverished because everybody was. Um, but they didn't have uh, a lot of the basic necessities. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have uh, in-home heat. They had to have a wood-burning stove. They had outdoor plumbing, uh, all of those kind of things. So every day for them started with chop wood for the, the fireplace, uh, get wo- uh, water from the well. All of their food was grown or caught or hunted directly themselves. There was pretty much nothing bought from a store. There was no store. In fact, my mom um, used to joke about once a week when uh, she was a little bit older, there would be a, a boat would come into the harbor with a tiny little store on it, and you could get really specialty things like gum. <laughs> and that was uh, <laughs> that was in the oh, 50s and even 60s, uh, which, of course, most of Canada was not living in those circumstances. So, you know, when I think about the kind of background they came from, it really makes me incredibly aware of how much work that kind of life requires. And even to this day, I would say my, my mother in particular is the hardest worker I've ever met. That not-too-distant reality isn't always what we think of in a country like Canada with a fortunate variety of hydro, gas, coal, petroleum, and renewable energy resources. But access to energy and power is still a challenge, not only currently in parts of Canada, especially remote communities that rely on diesel generators, but globally too. And it affects everything from how people are able to cook food to health when they need to use biomass through the smoke generated, um, to being able to study or walk in safety when it's dark or build and operate any kind of industry easily that needs a power supply. And that affects economies. Uh, And energy poverty, you know, in Alberta in particular, in Canada overall, but Alberta in particular, the words energy and poverty do not go together. Um, But in the reality, um, most of the world, energy poverty is a very real thing. Uh, And it really kind of ranges in three major scales. One is level zero, which would be somebody who has no access to electricity at all. They are burning candles to have any kind of light or fires to cook. That's about a little over a billion people in the world, so an eighth of the world's population, uh, approximately. 
then you get to uh, basically a level where they don't have enough energy to cook with. So they might have some energy for powering phones and some smaller things, but they don't have enough energy to cook with. So then what these people have to do is they have to burn something in order to cook their food. And that actually is a, a major problem in terms of um, uh, the greenhouse gases and such that are released from burning some kind of a biomass. And that ends up being around 2.6, 2.7 billion people in the world. So now we're getting up, you know, almost to a third of the world's population. Uh, and then when you get to what would be called domestic energy poverty, uh, we're really talking about people who do not have regular reliable electricity. So it could be that they have just really rampant blackouts. It could be that they have only low voltage, so they can only get kind of a low voltage service. So you couldn't run things like a dryer, for example. Um, and or they have um, like a certain time schedule in which they have electricity and the rest of the time they don't. Well, that's more than half the world's population. So when we talk about batteries, we've so often focused on electric vehicles, for example, which, hey, awesome, <laughs> love electric vehicles. Um, but that's only one piece of a, a very, very big puzzle. What's out there right now, primarily, you can get a few standalone things like, you know, larger size uh, power banks that might have an inverter. So there's a couple of really decent companies out there that make quite quality uh, products that would be comparable, but they can't be scaled. So you have a system that's, say, big enough to run, um, you know, some small um, items and electronics and maybe a TV or a fan, uh, but they can't ever be more. So one of the things that we did is we also said, well, you know, we know that research has shown very consistently that economic growth is directly tied to access to energy. So if we're going to, as a population, as society, try and increase um, people's opportunity and, and create more economic opportunity for everyone, alleviate poverty, then we have to get them more access to energy. Uh, and it can't be just a little bit. It has to grow with their needs or it becomes stagnant. And the new level zero is just a little bit more than it was before. So the idea of having something that was scalable was it's unheard of in the marketplace. Right now, to scale some kind of a system, you would have to have an electrician and or an engineer. The vision to empower people and solve energy problems wherever they are is part of Growing Greener Innovation's philosophy and also what differentiates its design from a company that's purely focused on commercializing and marketing tech. Connie mentioned that the company currently sells batteries in about 12 different countries and for different uses. Their design process, it happens here in Edmonton. And during that process, the vision around addressing energy needs stays well in mind. You know what, actually, when I started out, um, you know, I was still off with my twin boys at the time. And um, so a lot of it was just me taking notes and kind of thinking on things, researching uh, lots of times of babies napping and, and pulling out the phone because you're trapped anyway and and researching different topics. But for me, a lot of it came from um, a process that would be referred to as human centric design. Uh, where we basically, instead of saying, well, how do we make this system? We said, how do we solve this person's problem? Uh, and I, you know, from my perspective, I, I went and I kind of tried to imagine who was the person who was most disadvantaged? Who was, who were the people that had the least amount of access? Because if we can solve that person's problem, chances are we can solve everybody's problem. Uh, and so for me, I went, well, chances are that's going to be a woman living in an impoverished area. 
uh, probably small um, village or limited access to a grid, even if they had the money for it. Uh, limited education or technical background. And then I kind of tried to figure out, well, how do I solve this person's problem? You know, this person is probably walking a long ways to get uh, food or water. They're probably, um, you know, they, they have a lot of daily challenges. So what I tried to do is I tried to imagine what that person's life was and solve the problem there. And then I would try another person that I thought, okay, what about people who live in really remote northern communities? Now it's cold. Um, and that's a different kind of scenario. And again, I would go through that process. Well, what do they need? What is the, the essentials? And then what I did is I kind of went, well, what are the commonalities between all of these different perspectives? Because if we can find what makes it um, work for everybody, what is that minimum set? Then we have something that can be a truly global solution. And that's what we did. And really, it came down to three things. Um, we've What I really found was that we had to have a system that was plug and play of some level. So you had to have something that people didn't have to be technically trained for. Because as soon as you add that requirement, you're going to eliminate a lot of the world's population. Two, it had to be scalable because our needs always grow. Um, you know, you're always going to find, you know, just like we used to be with computers, you get a computer and then next year you want a faster computer because the software got bigger and you need more energy. Um, and it's the same. We need more energy constantly. It continues to go up. And third, it had to be portable because the reality is, A, that is our lifestyle um, in this century, um, but also for the fact that for a lot of people, they have to be mobile in order to gather food or uh, other basic living requirements. So those were the only things that were consistent across everybody's scenario. And then we said, okay, well, here's what we know. We know that that doesn't necessarily mean things like transmission lines. That doesn't necessarily mean things like big cables and specialized equipment. So we really kind of peeled back what is the simplest way to solve the problem? Because these are the three things that it has to do. So that was the starting point and the design philosophy behind Grenjen. Of course, starting and getting a business underway and producing and selling goods are another. Fundraising as a new entrepreneur is often a challenge, and that was definitely the case for Connie, especially as one of the few women leading a tech and manufacturing company like hers. I can safely say from my own experience, out of well over 100 startups or early stage energy related companies in this region that I saw, I've met maybe five or six or fewer with women co-founders, let alone as a sole founder. Way back in episode 12, How to Be Bold, Coalition CEO Jen Gorecki talked about some challenges that she encountered in trying to draw interest to snow sports products geared towards women specifically, and on drawing on crowdfunding to counter that. It's talked about more often now, along with organizations that specifically target women entrepreneurs. Connie's experience demonstrates some of the strategies and challenges around crowdfunding campaigns, and sometimes the limits to them as a less conventional way to get off the ground. <laughs> it's really quite funny. A friend of mine, um, uh, she had sent me a, a note on Facebook, and she said, you know, she had been reading an article about how few women there are in tech, in particular in deep tech. And again, in manufacturing, is pretty much non-existent. She's like, you're like the rare albino moose, <laughs> which I thought was quite hilarious. Um, in fact, uh, you know, one of the real benefits for women out there considering you will never have to wait in line in the washrooms. It's always empty. <laughs> Side benefits, you know. 
Yeah, actually, originally, I hadn't even heard of crowdfunding. Uh, it was I was just starting to go full time when uh, somebody I had worked with at another company while I was doing IT said, uh, you know, you should look at doing a crowdfunding campaign. Uh, oh, well, what is this? Um, and, you know, it, it's an interesting thing, but it's a catch 22. Uh, you really have to be aware of the pitfalls that come with crowdfunding as well. Um, you know, and I've seen it be very successful. Um, and I'll give an example. Unfortunately, uh, a friend of mine lost a family member in a, in a car accident earlier this year, and they used GoFundMe uh, to raise some funds for the widow and, and the children to kind of help them get through while they were dealing with insurance and all sorts of things. And that went very, very well for them. Um, but that was, of course, a, a limited amount of money for a short-term need. Starting a business, especially manufacturing business, is incredibly expensive. Um, believe me, if I had known how expensive, I probably would be in a different field right now. Um, but as it happened, I, uh, I went down this road and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try this. But what I did not realize is that a lot of the crowdfunding campaigns um, now have become a little bit... Um, let's say muddied, uh, where we have a lot of companies that come in with really big pots of money that they've preceded, uh, and they've bought a lot of uh, advertisements in big magazines. And what they do uh, is the campaign goes live, and they dump in a whole pile of money into their own campaign. So it might be, you know, set, you know, handful of people that are all going to buy within the first few minutes. And what it does is they achieve their goal within, say, 20 minutes. Uh, and by the end of an hour, they're at 3,000%. And of course, that pushes them to the top of the search engines within the, the crowdfunding campaign. So, wow, look at this amazing product that everybody wants. But in fact, you know, they've kind of bought it themselves. Uh, and that's a bit tricky because we didn't we didn't have that kind of background. We didn't have um, money to post in Forbes and we didn't have money to have advertisements in, you know, the New York Times or anything like that. We, we were just a small startup company. Um, so we did have good success. We did have quite a few people who really got behind us and loved the idea. Um, but it didn't become that, uh, you know, multi-million dollar, uh, fundraising thing because the reality is, you had to really look to find us. Uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't getting to the top of the page very easily. So it's, it's a good thing, but it's also a tricky thing. Uh, and some of the different platforms are better than others. Some of them are a little bit more difficult to do that kind of thing where you dump in money to your own campaign. Um, I know Indiegogo, you can do that. Um, and that's the one we used. And so we saw that happen a bunch where somebody put something up and they clearly put their own money into it. Um, and that really can throw things off a bit. So it's a bit tricky. Um, people expect to see a man at the, the head of a, a deep tech manufacturing company. Um, and you know, it's interesting. You can read some very fascinating studies and articles. Uh, I remember reading one in particular, how, you know, it, it was, uh, they were doing some pitch competitions, I think it was, and asking um, people afterwards how they felt about it, etc. And interestingly, the deep tech group, all of the men um, were asked about things, okay, so how are you going to manage growth? How are you going to manage cash flow as you move forward? And, and it was very much about how will you grow your business. Um, and by contrast, the same women who offered really similar th things um, were asked, uh, what makes you think that you can compete in this field? Um, how are you going to handle, um, you know, bankruptcy? Or how are you going to handle these other things? And the questions tended to be quite negative, uh, as though that they wouldn't succeed. And these people were, 
you know, not intending to be biased. I think we have a lot of built-in bias there that we just, we don't recognize. Um, you know, and that's something that uh, can be a bit of a challenge. I think you have to choose to be consciously um, aware of your bias. And that's something that's easy to overlook. Um, so that's a, that's something that we had to fight against a fair bit. People would typically assume that somebody else was the head of the business. And some people just really didn't want to deal with me. Um, and you know what? Sometimes I would just say, you know what? This is not a customer that's worth pursuing right now. And we're not going to go down that road. And there's lots of opportunity for us. So that's okay. Um, not everybody will have that choice. Um, sometimes, you know, the number of customers you have to deal with might be a lot smaller. Um, and you might run into a lot more of those challenges. One of the real benefits, though, is, you know, I had the opportunity to be on a panel um, at the Canada India Tech Summit. And it was all women on this particular panel. Um, or I should say it was about women entrepreneurship. Uh, there was actually one man representing a, another group. Uh, but interestingly, what really came out of it was how much people who come from an outsider's position, so somebody who's not been uh, normally included at the table, so to speak, often bring the most innovative solutions because they're not bogged down with biases. They're not bogged down at least with the same biases. So, for example, um, you know, if I had been working at uh, a utility company, I might have approached this problem about uh, power with the idea of, well, how do I make um, transmission lines more efficient? But instead, I came from an outside position. I said, well, do we need transmission lines? Like, is that a requirement? Uh, and that's something that I think when you're coming from um, an outside position or a non-dominant position in a field, you certainly, you bring a new perspective. And that perspective can be incredibly valuable. In fact, that's usually where a lot of the disruption in different industries come from is when somebody comes in with something that is, you know, really out of left field, or it feels like it's out of left field. People go, well, this can't work. This is never going to fly. Um, but what they've really hit on is something that's really unique. And it came from a perspective uh, that was outside of, you know, the dominant perspective. And you know, they end up being huge successes. So Connie has been thinking differently for most of her life. Her company also eventually found a different route to funding through friends and family, and then through angel investors. And more recently, now that they're well into revenue and already have customers, through grants. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And, and there's certain things you simply cannot know until you've gone through the experience yourself. Um, for me, one of the things, I, I really was reluctant to bring on investors too early, um, you know, we're a social enterprise. Uh, our underlying mission is to empower all people. Um, and for me, bringing on investors, especially at an early stage, really ran the risk that, you know, if we're not, or I personally am not the majority holder in the company, then, you know, do we lose that social enterprise mission? So I was very hesitant about that to begin with. Um, and quite frankly, when we started, you know, <laughs> I had a lot of people look at me and go, I don't get it. Or they would be like, uh, I just don't see innovation here. Or they'd be like, um, so it's a battery. But they couldn't see that it was more than a battery. Um, so we spent a lot of time in the early stages where we would apply for um, grants and stuff, and we got nowhere. People just did not get it. Um, so we got, uh, initially, we had no support. Um, we had a lot of people just say, I don't get it. I don't see innovation here. Um, I don't see a market for your product. Uh, and we really got a lot of closed doors as it happened uh, because what we're doing really approaches it in a way that nobody else is doing. 
nobody else in the world really does it this way. Um, we really have a, a different kind of tact to this um, uh, industry. So at first we, we had very, very limited to zero support. Um, so that was tough. Uh, we did do a small friends and family campaign and that was helpful. That really kind of kept us alive in the early, early stages. And then we were very, very fortunate that we found a, a couple of um, angel investors who were willing to do debt um, rather than equity. And, you know, they made back lots of money. So they were quite happy with that and they didn't require equity. So that really was what kept us going because honestly, at the early stages, without that, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have made it. Uh, but now, by contrast, you know, we have in the last 18 months or so, we've won quite a few different awards. And the reality is all of a sudden getting those awards has started to make other people go, oh, wait a sec, maybe there is something here. Maybe I better look a little bit closer. And now all of a sudden we're starting to get grants. Um, we're starting to get support. And it's not huge. It's not, you know, lots of people think, oh, the government's probably giving them you know, millions of dollars because it's clean energy stuff. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's definitely not the case. But we have been very fortunate in the last, um, basically a year where we've had a couple different programs who said, you know what, we're going to provide some uh, partial funding to support staff positions. And actually, this is a type of program that I'm really, really fond of because I think it's a win for everybody because it's not money that goes into something um, stagnant. Uh, it's something that creates a job for a person who's also going to participate in the economy. Uh, so it helps lower our cost, which you know we can then hire a high-tech person that we need, um, but without... Um, you know, sometimes people are very hesitant to to see money going into things where, say, it's buying equipment. Well, equipment isn't going to contribute to the economy in quite the same way as giving a person a job. So we've been very fortunate that uh, in the last basically a year, we've gotten uh, some support for a couple of different positions now. And that's really helped us out a lot. Going back to thinking and approaching things differently, I asked Connie if she's always thought a bit differently from a lot of her peers and colleagues, even before she made a turn into entrepreneurship. She's running her company, for example, not only as a viable business, but specifically as a social enterprise where profit is not the sole goal, but where there are social and environmental priorities and measures as well. You know what, I think it's a combination of things. And I, I, it's like everything. I mean, you have background things that might set you up for things. One of the things for me, unquestionably, <laughs> whether, whether she intended it and maybe now looks back and goes, what was I thinking? Um, my my mom used to always say, like, I want, I was a kid who wanted to do everything. And my mom would be, well, of course you can, but what are you going to choose? You can only do so much. You you only have a limited amount of time or money or effort that you can put out. So you have to make a choice. So it was never a question, could I do something? It was always, was I willing to pay the price for that, that option that I wanted to do? So when I considered doing this, you know, really, I think in my heart of hearts, I thought, well, of course I can. I mean, it might be hard. I might, it might take a lot of money, but of course I can. Uh, so that gave me a lot of that initial, you know what, I, I, I'm going to go. The other piece that really was um, absolutely crucial, quite frankly, is the fact that my wife is, uh, she's an incredible person and she's super supportive. And, you know, we had two young children, um, you know, about a year later, we had three. Um, and uh, we, when I came to her and I said, you know, I, I really want to go full time with this. I think I want to, I want to really make a go of it. 
you know, are you prepared to support our family? Because I may not have an income for quite some time. And she said, yes. Um, and that's quite frankly in the saint category. <laughs> well, you know what? Um, social enterprise is a, a fairly new concept for a lot of people, but you'll find that it's a growing, growing space. Uh, and it's, it's companies that, like us, operate on a triple bottom line. Uh, people, profit, planet, in no particular order. Um, meaning that it's not end-all, be-all for the dollar. Um, we're not going to compromise how we treat the planet, and we're not going to compromise how we treat people to make a dollar. But we also have to be profitable. We're, we're not a charity. We, we do need to make a profit. So it's about balancing those things when you're a social enterprise, uh, as opposed to say not-for-profit. Um, so that's kind of that general theme around what a social enterprise looks like. For us in particular, um, it really came down to the idea that we build batteries because we want to empower people. We don't empower people just because we build batteries. Uh, and that kind of approach to it is a really different kind of mindset. When when we look at problems, we look at, well, it really is kind of irrelevant to some degree um, whether or not we're a battery manufacturer company. What we want to do is we want to help people. So when we're tasked with, can you do something in this space? Can you help this customer? Does it fit our mission? And that really drives it far more than what is the most efficient um, product to put out next. You know, the most efficient product might be, you know, a, a new addition to a, a battery or um, say some kind of an accessory. But if a customer comes and, or, you know, an opportunity arises where we can help a lot of people, well, we might put a higher priority on that. And that's what we do. Like I think every every person that we have in our company um, and I'm blessed to work with these amazing people. Um, every person here just really truly wants to make the world a better place and believes in that. And I don't have to ask them to put in their best. They just do because it's what we all want. Yeah. So actually the foundation is still kind of a work in progress. Um, but our plan, what we've done is we've actually put into our bylaws um, a profit sharing program where a portion, I think it was 25 percent, of all profit sharing would go to a not-for-profit uh, that we want to have associated with the business. Um, and the idea of the not-for-profit is to assist in those projects and uh, opportunities where, quite frankly, the profit isn't there. Um, there's places where, quite frankly, it's just never going to be financially feasible for growing greener to go in. We're not going to make money, but yet we're, we are still a for-profit business. So the idea with the foundation is to create opportunity and uh, funding for some of those projects we really deeply care about, but maybe are outside the scope of growing greener as a business. Uh, so one of the things that um, I like to do when we bring on um, new staff is I always ask, well, like, what's your dream job? which terrifies really young people, by the way, because they're like, is this a trick question? Um, and I say, well, no, I really do want to know because most people won't spend their entire careers at a single company. Uh, so tell me what it is you would like to know and to learn so that we can help you work towards that goal. And, you know, one of my my directors and probably my right arm, quite frankly, her goal is to run the not-for-profit. That's what she really wants to do is to run that uh uh, kind of associated organization that does the prof the charity type work and I think is brilliant. That brings us to how Growing Greener Innovations products are designed and made. That's a bit different too. 
I expected, and that you might as well, coming from a different background, although Connie had worked for a manufacturing company during her career, much of the design work would be outsourced, and definitely the battery manufacturing would be. For so long, other locations haven't been that cost-effective, but all of that is happening or coming back to Edmonton too, and it says a lot about how automation and other technologies are changing the game when it comes to manufacturing, and how and where it can take place. It potentially opens new doors and opportunities and industries in places where that hasn't traditionally been the case for some time. You know what, originally, well, we certainly do all of the design work here in Edmonton. Originally, we had the actual assembly of our units done uh, overseas. And honestly, it was mostly because everybody just kept advising me, well, that's what you do. Like, well, you can't, you can't manufacture in Canada. Um, and I was really reluctant to go that route, but I got convinced that, you know, this is how you do it when you're starting. And, and we did go that way for the first while. Um, and we actually, you know, we had very good success. I know a lot of people have horror stories, uh, but the company that we used for the assembly of our product happens to be Overflow for Panasonic. So they're very high quality and they're um, very reputable firm and we've had no problems with them. But we have decided that um, it's time to move everything back here to Canada. Um, and so that we're in that process right now. We're actually literally setting up a small scale production facility in our Edmonton space, uh, which hopefully we will be scaling again and again and again. Uh, but part of that comes not because we had a particular problem with our supply chain. They've been, like I said, they've, I've no complaints about the company we worked with. Um, but the reality is when it's not on your site, you don't have direct control over the quality assurance and you don't have um, that on-site ability to just know what's going on, to test more thoroughly, to ask questions. Um, you know, with the facility we used, we were we were one of a, a lot of different companies. Here, when we produce them ourselves, well, it's our baby. You know it's getting our best attention. You know, and actually you bring up a really good point with the cost. I think there's a lot of misconceptions there. One of the things that is kind of um, developing as a result of automation and machine learning and artificial intelligence, well, more and more of manufacturing is becoming automated. Uh, and what that does is it really changes the geography about manufacturing. Because in the past, we went to overseas markets to manufacture because of a low cost of labor. But you're not paying a wage to a machine. You're paying for electricity. And what you need is stable, inexpensive electricity. Well, quite frankly, you'd be hard-pressed to find better than the prairies in Canada. And in Alberta, I mean, we have one of the single lowest costs per kilowatt hour in the entire world. The lowest national average is 10 cents per kilowatt hour. And right now in Alberta, we're paying 8 cents. Uh, so, I mean, it's for us, if your major cost is going to be around electricity, well, quite frankly, you're going to be pretty competitive doing it here um, as compared to doing it someplace like China or Korea. Uh, add to that the fact that um, Canada actually has more free trade agreements than any other G7 country. Well, all of a sudden, let's say, um, let's say a company in China makes a similar product or copies ours. Well, if we both go to sell to Israel, well, Canada has free trade with Israel, so there is no additional tax added to our product, but the Chinese product would get hit with a 15% tax. Well, that's a 
big difference on a, uh, in terms of margin on a, a mid-sized product because your margin is not you know a thousand percent when you're selling products that are hundreds or even thousands of dollars. Uh, so it can be a big difference in terms of does it um, become cost competitive enough? And our our analysis shows that we will certainly be cost competitive and possibly the cheaper option, uh, and while maintaining the better uh, opportunity to control our quality. So moving from immediate fundraising through design and manufacturing processes, growing greener innovation's next challenge was, like for so many startups, finding initial customers who are willing and interested to try a new product, and then moving into a larger market. As Connie notes, part of their customers' interest is driven by how acute their energy challenges are. We're actually in probably about 12 different countries right now, uh, a little bit all over the place. And part of that was um, one of the challenges a lot of people don't recognize is when you build a new tech, something that has never been built before, um, one of your single biggest challenges is actually your first major customer. Um, Because getting those people to try something new is scary. So if you're, you know, company A down the road and you're looking at something going, oh, you know, it sounds like it could be good, but will it actually work? Uh, and for bigger systems in particular, people don't want to put out thousands and thousands of dollars um, for something that they're not assured is going to be a knock it out of the park kind of solution. So a lot of times the biggest challenge is getting that first big customer. So the small units, we had success getting them to distributors in, like I said, about a dozen countries around the world right now, and that's growing. Uh, but with our bigger systems, you know, it took a little bit more work. And we have a couple of big ones that, uh, you know, we're in the process of probably announcing in the next little while. Um, but all of a sudden, that um, proof, the proof that comes with, hey, we one of our customers is the Canadian Department of Defense. Well, that holds a lot of weight with a potential customer because they go, well, they can afford to buy the best of the best. And if they've chosen this product, it's got to be pretty reliable. Uh, so for us, that's a really big thing. And now all of a sudden, we're in conversations, we're doing quotes for companies like Procter & Gamble. Uh, so, you know, we have the opportunity to expand exponentially, you know, with that getting of those first couple of really substantial projects. It just it changes the game entirely. In countries where um, grid stability is a bigger factor, they're definitely quicker to jump on because, quite frankly, they have a problem that is unresolved and they need to find a solution. In Canada, you know, a lot of our customers are, are looking at saving thousands upon thousands of dollars a month, even in our industrial solutions. However, they're kind of going, but we don't have to do it. We're still going to have electricity tomorrow. So is this a safe bet? Uh, versus, you know, say we're looking at a remote area in Brazil. Well, they might not have very reliable power at all. Um, actually, and I'll give you a little bit of a, a general uh, example. There's a company we were talking to who is building um, medical supplies in Mexico. Well, every time they have a power outage, even if it's so much as five minutes, the plant has to be shut down for 24 hours while they re-sanitize everything. So even a small interruption in power can be hugely costly for a company like that. So all of a sudden, those folks are going, well, no, we have to have something. Whereas in Canada, most companies are going to have, say, a diesel backup. It's not great, but it's it's going to get the job done. So they can afford to be a bit more conservative. But now, you know, with the numbers coming out and people going, wow, that company saving $15,000 a month on their electrical bill? 
ooh, maybe I should be looking at this. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's definitely been a little bit more conservative in terms of um, industrial companies in particular coming on board um, in Canada and the U.S. Uh, but I think that we're starting to see that shift now. And again, that's, I think, a result of some of these bigger contracts and awards and stuff that are coming in. And lest you think that things are or were completely smooth sailing and it's all worked out and Connie's sipping margaritas in her backyard while the batteries roll out of an Edmonton warehouse, like so many companies, the pandemic affected her company too. Here's what happened. You know what, um, you know, COVID was has been good and bad for us. Um, at first, one of the big things that happened, um, and I'll leave for confidentiality reasons some of the particulars out, but we had a very large uh, project uh, that was $10.5 million that was put on hold. Um, and that's the largest project we would have had to date. Uh, obviously, when you get to a $10 million stage, that's a big project. Uh, that was a hard hit. Now, we know, we've been assured that, yes, we absolutely want to continue with this project afterwards, but the facility in question uh, is being used for COVID-related um, work and everything in there for um situation has changed. So it's probably been put on for hold for the better part of six months to a year. Well, that's a that's a big hit. Uh, so that one hurt. And they definitely, um, it, it sent me kind of going, oh, man, uh, ouch. <laughs> um, but on the flip side, uh, overall, what I've really found is a lot of people are going, you know what, we need to be more resilient, we need to be looking at how we can do things better, how we can be um, more self-sufficient. And that actually is a positive thing for the battery industry overall, because people are going, well, what about backup? What about generating our own power and storing it with solar and battery and things like that? So we've actually probably had now an increase um, of, of requests, probably even double what we had before. So, you know, our income took a major hit um, with the pause of that project. Um, but I think in the long term, it's actually going to be more of a blip. One of the other things I'd say that we did with COVID that um, maybe was a little bit of a different approach was with uh, a lot of our bigger customers, um, you know, and not, not just the bigger customers, quite frankly, but for a lot of people, it really comes down to cash flow. Um, most business decisions right now, I mean, especially with COVID, have to do with how do we deal with this cash flow problem today? We're going to be okay in the long run, but right now I have employees to pay and we've had major reductions in our income. How do we manage cash flow? And one of the things we did is we said, well, we actually have a product that for commercial and industrial customers in particular will save them a lot of money. So what we did is we actually kind of revised a little bit of our, our financing model around those systems where essentially, you know, companies can be cash flow positive right from day one. Uh, and that's pretty much unheard of. So now to go to a company and say, okay, you know, you have to commit to us a little bit of a longer time, but with, you know, a very small down payment, you can be saving, say, $15,000 a month on your electrical bill. And people go, really? <laughs> um, and I think that that's been a really positive for us as well as a lot of people go, well, that's that's almost too good to be true. Um, you know, obviously not everybody's going to save that much, but even if, uh, let's say, you know, they save a certain amount and a portion of it goes to pay for the system and they're $2,000 a month ahead in their cash flow. Well, that's that's a no-brainer. Anything that's going to save you money um, and cash flow in the in your bank account is, is a pretty big win. So we've had a very positive response to that as well. And we're start, starting to see a lot of people go, you know what, 
this makes a lot of sense and we're, we're very interested in moving forward. So we, we did a little bit of shifting in our business model as well. So how else does Growing Greener Innovations do things differently in striving to be an inclusive company? And what's Connie's best advice for people who are thinking of starting their own business and doing things differently? Yeah, in terms of culture, I think that's, you know, kind of our bread and butter. We we spend almost all of our lunch hours talking about various things and, and topics and trying to understand different perspectives. And, you know, we kind of joke that we're... Um, you know, a little bit of a, a mini UN uh, because we have people from so many different areas and so many different backgrounds. So, you know, we spend a lot of time like saying, well, okay, you know, one of our employees happens to be from uh, Pakistan and has a Muslim uh, background. Well, help me understand this. Why do you do this? Why does that happen? And someone else is from Israel and is Jewish and, and they might share something else that they do. And it really, everything in here, we approach with the, I want to understand more. I want to understand and I want to be accepting and I want to make the world a better place. And that comes from acceptance and understanding and just being really open-minded. So, you know, and I think that everybody, everybody really has that kind of mindset. And I won't lie. I think part of it comes from the fact that I really make a point, um, whether it's in an interview or very early on, I, I very clearly let people know that I'm a gay woman because I feel like they need to know that because if they're not comfortable coming to work for me, then they're not in the right company. <laughs> um, and so usually the people that are here, like I, I have yet to have a person who even blinks uh, when I mention that I'm married to a woman, uh, which is a wonderful statement about where we are in Canada today, quite frankly. Um, but it's great because people are like, oh, okay, so they're totally open-minded and relaxed and I can be myself. And I I feel like it sets a, a really positive tone in our office. Ooh, top pieces of advice. Well, you know what? Um, first and foremost, you truly do have to believe in it. You can't go in halfway um, because you will get beat down. There's nothing easy about this. When you start, you're going to have a lot of times where you're going, I, I thought we would be profitable by now. Um, the fact is most small businesses, most startups um, don't make it to year five. In fact, most don't even make it, I think, to year three. And very few are profitable before year five. Uh, you know, maybe that's not the case as much in service industries where, say, um, maybe you're an accountant and you're, and you're servicing with your time. Uh, but when you're providing something, you're building a product of some kind and um, you have to do a lot of work up front before you can actually sell it. It's going to take a lot of work before you start to see um, the results of that that effort. So if you're only halfway committed, um, you're going to have a problem because you're going to quit. You will. It's it's really hard. <laughs> Some days I wake up and I'm like, why did I choose to do this to myself? Um, and then I see my kids and I get back in the saddle. But uh, that's a big one. I think you really have to be committed to it. Um, and I think you, you have to have or at least be on the stages of building what I would call as true confidence. Uh, and to me, I read this great quote that I think summed it up so perfectly. It was, real confidence is not, they will like me. Real confidence is, I'll be okay if they don't. And that for me was, that became everything because I had to be willing to say, you know what, I understand what they're recommending. I understand why I'm choosing a different path. Um, and sometimes you have to do that as a business owner. You really have to be, confident enough to make the right decisions, even when the pressure might be to do something totally different. 
So that's what it looks like at a company run by an unconventionally thinking entrepreneur who had to find a way to open her own doors and is still opening those new doors through a social enterprise, a future nonprofit foundation, and an international approach. If you'd like to find out more, you can find Connie and Grenjen or Growing Greener Innovations at Grenjen.com. A big thanks to Connie, Stacy, and Jackie Luger for making this episode happen. And if you'd like to comment on it, you can find us at Polinata1 on Twitter. We always enjoy hearing what listeners think about the episodes. Join us next time to hear from Tendai Vicky, an international and cross-pollinating business author and consultant on his new book, Pirates in the Navy, all about the nitty-gritty, the guts, and the glory of doing things differently and innovating inside large companies. This episode is brought to you by Shift by Alberta Innovates. Alberta is a hotbed of innovation and Shift puts the spotlight on Albertan innovators working to improve the world one ripple at a time. They have an episode with Connie at Grenjen if you'd like to hear more from her. They also have an episode where they talk to Laura Kilcrease, Alberta Innovates CEO, and Todd Hirsch, Vice President and Chief Economist at ATB Financial. Together, they discuss the Albertan economy and today's new normal, offering insightful wisdom for small businesses. You can find Shift on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, you can also find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca, shift.albertainnovates.ca. This episode of Cross Pollination is also brought to you by Straight from the CPA's Mouth, a new podcast series created by the CPA Education Foundation and funded by the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center. Alberta's chartered professional accountants, CPAs, are experts on a wide range of topics and issues of interest to Albertans. Straight from the CPA's mouth has discussions on topics important to you from leadership skills and achieving career potential to financial literacy and how to make your tax refund bigger. Whether you're a university student, a new Albertan, or a parent, you'll find something of value on this unique podcast. You'll find Straight from the CPA's Mouth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or on the CPA Education Foundation's website at cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. cpaalberta.ca slash foundation.